0: Hi, I'm Shashank Bhargav, and you're listening to Three Things, the Indian Express News Show. In this episode, we talk about the discovery that has opened up possibilities that there might be extraterrestrial life on Venus. We also take a quick look at Rajnath Singh's comments about China in the parliament yesterday. But first, we talk about unemployment. Late last month, the government had released data that showed that India's gross domestic product growth or GDP growth contracted 23.9% in the April-June quarter. This was the lowest growth rate since India had started reporting quarterly data in 1996 and the sharpest GDP contraction among the top 20 global economies. Since then, several rating agencies and investment banks, including India Ratings and Research, Goldman Sachs and Crystal have also revised their forecasts about India's growth rate and they all point in the negative direction. In a previous episode, we had talked about how this economic crisis induced by the COVID-19 pandemic would impact India. And one of the ways in which it would, and to a large extent already has, is by increasing the unemployment in the country. In this segment, we talked to Udit Mishra, who writes on Economy for the Indian Express, about the extent to which people have already lost jobs during the lockdown, the patterns we have seen in the job losses, and to what extent the government can provide a solution to it. And he first talks about how the situation had already been worsening even before the pandemic started.
1: We know for a fact that if we were to look at the official data which the Ministry of Statistics and Program Implementation puts out, uh, and it comes with a sort of a lag of one year or so, we found that. Between 2011-12 and 2017-18, India recorded the first ever decline in the total number of employed people. Now, it is significant because every year we tend to add millions of people in our labor force. So, ideally, the total number of employed people should go up. And this was the first time that we found that the total number of employed people came down. Even if we were to look at the CMIE data, the Center for Monitoring Indian Economy data, which is uh, slightly different in its methodology, and they've been tracking since 2016, we find that the total number of employed people has been either stagnant or has slightly come down. So uh, we already had a situation where just before the pandemic started at the end of 2019-20 financial year, that is ending March this year, Uh, We had around 403 million people who were employed and roughly around, you know, 35 odd million people who were already unemployed. Now,
0: that was the situation before the pandemic. He says that after the pandemic hit in April, out of the 400 million people who had a job, 121 million lost it. That comes to about 30% of them. That was a massive hit. In the following months, as the lockdown relaxed, according to CMIE, out of the 121 million jobs that were lost, close to 110 million returned. But the composition of these jobs, it says, was not the same as the ones that were lost in April. So what we found was that
1: in April, when 121 million jobs were lost, most of them were daily wage jobs. A huge chunk was also salaried jobs around seventeen odd million, and then there were a lot of businesses that went under businessmen who lost jobs. Then there was farming jobs they actually went up, you know even in April it saw recorded five million up in the farm jobs, which was understandable because a lot of people who were leaving cities were going back to the villages and taking up some kind of job there. Over the next three, four months, what we saw that daily wage laborers sort of recovered a lot of those jobs. The 90 million lost their jobs. 80 odd million sort of got it back. Businesses recovered to a certain extent. Seven odd uh, million or 10 odd million came back there. Uh, Farm jobs, we saw a lot more farm jobs. You know, another 7 million sort of joined farming or farm related activities. But the one sector where we saw continued job losses was the salaried section. And by the end of August, we found uh, that 21 million salaried jobs had been lost. And these are um, not only the more difficult jobs to get, but once you've lost them, it's also that much for people to recover. So the composition has changed. We have still a, a certain amount of deficit of around 11 odd million from where it was in March. But It's the composition also that matters because now it's more and more farm jobs, which are low-paying jobs and often are seen as disguised unemployment. And we are also seeing that a lot of salaried jobs have been lost, which will create a lot of stress for families in the cities and for the middle class.
0: There are also several patterns that have emerged out of the jobs that have been lost. One unfortunate pattern, Udit says, is that women are increasingly not part of the employment story in India.
1: So we already saw that over the years, fewer women are seeking jobs. And that is showing up in a poorer labor force participation rate in India. I mean, largely, it's all the men seeking jobs, women staying away from seeking jobs. And that is what is bringing down our labor force participation rate. Basically, that rate maps how many people are seeking work. And uh, we are finding that as against developed countries where 60 people out of 100 who are in the working age seek jobs, in India, it is only around 40-odd percent. And for women, that number is actually almost 26-odd percent. So that sort of limits your growth, you know, your GDP growth, your economic activity, because women, you know, half of your population is not sort of participating in the, uh, or
0: is not able to participate in the growth story. And this pattern is then also reflected in the job losses that have happened recently.
1: When the job losses are happening, more and more women are losing jobs. I mean, you know, disproportionate to their involvement in the workforce. So, if you were to look at the 2019-20 data, which was around 403 million people employed in the workforce, only 11% of them were women. However, if you look at the existing job losses, which is around 11 million, 4 million are women, which is around 37%. So, the job losses for women are almost four times what their involvement is in the existing jobs.
0: So not only are more and more women not seeking jobs for various reasons, but when it comes to job losses, they have also lost jobs disproportionately more than men. The other pattern that emerges in the job loss is age. People below the age of 40 so
1: roughly between 15 to 40 years of age, which would sort of involve students or the earliest entrance to the workforce, the graduates, the first and second job holders, they are the ones who've lost jobs far more than the people above the age of 40 and so on. They have actually gained jobs, if anything. And if you look at it in terms of education, then mostly it's the graduates who have lost jobs. So, I mean, people who are... Graduate and above, that educational attainment has lost jobs. And people who have studied less than standard 10th and below, they have lost a lot of jobs. The middle has sort of survived a bit better. But with higher educational attainment, it has associated with more job losses.
0: This is something Udit says that we have seen over the years in the official data as well. That the unemployment rate was higher among the population that had attained higher levels of education.
1: So a lot of things here, a lot of patterns here which are very disheartening because women are uh, increasingly not part of the job force and more education is not helping. Those are the areas where job losses are happening and job losses are happening in a crucial demographic where between 15 to 40 years age, people are losing jobs. So that's the broader
2: picture.
0: As Udit mentioned earlier, one thing that has happened now is that with people returning to villages, a lot more of them are employed or are seeking jobs in the farm sector. But this will create problems of its own. One being that farming has never been that profitable. And Udit says that an old notion in policy making has actually been to get people out of farming. So the
1: idea was that over time, India will pull people out of farming, have them into manufacturing, which possibly can have as many people, I mean, maximum number of job creation and into services. And by doing this, not only the people who are left over in the farming sector earn more, but also the others who've gone to other sectors like manufacturing and services also earn more and there is greater prosperity. Now, what is happening is that more and more people are reverting back to the villages and taking up some kind of a farm job, some related job. Uh, So one is that the already unremunerative sector will become even more so. You know, people will get lesser money, profitabilities will actually drop. The other thing is that with all the people, with so many people getting back into the villages, a lot of village households used to get remittances from the people who were working outside. Now those remittances have gone down. So that is another source where the income stress will come from. That now there's nobody sending in money from
0: outside. The other problem, he says, with more farm jobs is that it will put more financial burden on the government.
1: Because with so many people there and we're trying to create Narega jobs or create any kind of jobs or social security, the state governments or governments in general will find that they'll have to spend far more in those areas in villages because they had not accounted for this kind of a surge in demand at the village level. And this also puts a lot of burden on the infrastructure, you know. So many people coming back across villages, schools and health infrastructure will not be there. So it's going to be a massive issue in the coming years if more and more people stay in the villages or more people revert back to the farm sector.
0: Now, one question that needs answering at this point is, how many jobs does India require? Udit answers that for us. So every month, we have around
1: 2 million people joining the working age population. Now, not all of them are seeking jobs, and that is the labor force participation rate. In India right now, the labor force participation rate is around 40%. And if you were to calculate it through that route, then every month, 0.8 million people are seeking jobs. And if you were to multiply this to 12, then for... Any particular year, you will come to something like 9.6 million jobs that are required.
0: This 9.6 million is calculated based on the fact that in India, only 40 out of 100 people, that is only 40% actually seek jobs. But Udit points out that in more developed economies, this should be upwards of 55 to 60%. Now, so if you were to go
1: to something like 60% labor force participation rate, the demand for jobs Further goes up from here so that's why a lot of people have been saying that over the coming few years India would have to create millions of jobs you know somewhere between 90 million to 144 million over the next 10 years for it to actually have a contained uh, unemployment situation otherwise it can sort of keep snowballing with every passing year so it's a genuinely massive concern right now for policymakers.
0: As things stand, people are going to lose more jobs. Though, to what extent remains unclear. One of the most important factors that will determine this, Udit says, is how fast and to what extent we can bring down the COVID-19 infection rate. Another question that arises is that when it comes to providing jobs, how much can the government actually help? Now,
1: at the present level, government provides only about 15 million jobs out of the 400 million that we have. And I'm going just by the CMIE data. So that's a very small number, 15 million out of 400 million. So all the noise that you see around reservations for jobs and reservations for locals or reservations for one community or the other or reservations based on economic considerations, all of that is for that small pie of 15 million jobs out of 400 million. Now, if you think about it that, you know, you at least need 10 million jobs every year this is hardly anything you know what the government creates so first thing is to understand that if you are requiring something like 10 millions every year at the very least then government perhaps will not be at the going rate will not be a sector which will be able to provide new jobs they have to then come from the private sector which is either business or business is doing well and employing more people having more salaried jobs Until unless, as uh, Mahesh Vyas, the CEO of CMIE, says that, you know, until unless the government itself says that, okay, listen, we are understaffed in terms of health workers, sanitation workers, police and everything. We, you know, start ramping up our own employment, you know. So government says, you know, I'll double up on the total employment that I create and sort of soaks up a lot of employment demand and also
0: provides services for it. But that, Udit says, is not very likely to happen right now because the government is already very financially stressed. So for now, most of the answers to jobs will have to come from the private sector. But the private sector too will not recruit unless the overall demand for goods and services goes up. So it's a chicken and egg situation. Demand is not picking up because people do not have jobs and don't have money. So they're
1: not demanding anything more. And businesses are not recruiting because, you know, there's no demand. And so, under the given circumstances with the scenario where our banks are stressed and our risk covers don't want to really push credit further and we already have businesses which are already stressed, which were already struggling because we had a weak economy going into the COVID situation, it looks more likely that... Everybody across the board on employment issue will have a very stressful time. If you do lose a job at this scenario in such an economy, it would be that much more difficult to regain that job. And those who are entering the workforce in this economy are likely to find that either they do not get the job that they want or do not get any job or get the job but do not get the kind of wages that they were hoping to get. And that stress may sort of linger for a few years. And I'm talking something like 5 to 10 years, that kind of a
0: scale. Dear listeners, sorry for this interruption, but before we move on to the rest of the show, I just wanted your quick attention. One of the big reasons people say they like this show is because it helps them understand the news better. It provides them with the context they need to see the bigger picture. And there is perhaps no other place that does that better than Indian Express's Explained section. We on three things refer to the section regularly, and it helps us make this show. If you're a regular reader of Indian Express, you know how useful the explained section can be, especially when you're looking for in-depth analysis by the right experts. You can log on to indianexpress.com explained and access the coverage 24-7. Explained by Indian Express, where news that matters is explained by experts who know the subject. Now, back to the show. Next we talk about Venus, the closest planet to Earth and the second brightest object in our night sky after the moon. On Monday, an international team of astronomers made a discovery about Venus that has triggered a lot of excitement among scientists across the globe. These astronomers have found the presence of a gas called phosphine in the planet's atmosphere, which has led them to believe that there might be a possibility of life on the planet. In this segment, Amitabh Sinha, a resident editor in Pune, who writes on matters of science for the newspaper, joins us to talk about this discovery and what the presence of this gas has got to do with the possibility of alien life on Venus. And he first talks about what phosphine really is.
2: Now, phosphine, as the name suggests, is a phosphorus-based compound. It's a colorless gas. Uh, It smells like garlic, apparently. And the speciality of this particular gas is that what we know about this gas it is produced by biological process meaning it is produced by life forms it is specifically it is produced by certain species of bacteria
0: the gas which is extremely poisonous can also be found in some deep sea worms and is known to be released by microorganisms that don't require oxygen for growth also called anaerobic organisms the gas can of course also be industrially produced and because of its toxic nature, has also been used in chemical warfare by militaries in the past. But naturally, it is mainly produced by a biological process. Now, if that is the case, then where it is leading you to
2: is to say, okay, if we have found a gas near a planet which is produced by a life form only, then does it open the possibility of life form being present on that particular planet as well. So that is all there is to it. So you have found a gas which is produced by a biological process and therefore there's a lot of excitement.
0: The presence of the gas in Venus's atmosphere was detected using large telescopes. But the matter isn't exactly settled. One factor is that there are other ways scientists say in which phosphine can be produced. You know, it is
2: apparently found under some volcanoes, for example, there have been some traces of phosphine being found there. Uh, In meteorite collision, some amount of phosphine sometimes is produced. So there are other geochemical processes in which phosphine can theoretically be produced. Now, these scientists who, who have found this, they have spent three years looking at the data and trying to look at all the other possibilities through which this could have been produced and they have ruled out all other possibilities. None of them fit the kind of data that they see and any other process would have led to much lesser concentration of phosphine in the Venus atmosphere than they have found. In fact, a million times lesser than what they have found. So they have ruled out all sorts of other possibilities
0: that are known to us. This is the reason that Amitabh says that the possibility that the gas was produced biologically through a living thing cannot be ruled out. Though this doesn't mean that there is life on Venus right now.
2: It can even be possible that at some point in history, maybe millions of years ago, there was life form. because. There are two things. One, we do not know how long phosphine remains. So it is possible that this phosphine that we have found here may be from millions of years old. We really don't
0: know. Especially because if we look at Venus's atmosphere, it is particularly inhospitable. The surface temperature in Venus, for example, is upwards
2: of 450 degrees centigrade. You don't imagine life would survive in that kind of high temperature. Similarly, the air pressure, for example, the atmospheric pressure around Venus is so high that if we somehow landed there, we'd be crushed within seconds. It's such high atmospheric pressure, you won't survive. Uh, Then the entire atmosphere is full of sulfuric acid. It's highly acidic in nature. So Again,
0: something that is not conducive to life forms at all. But this wasn't always the case for Venus. Millions of years ago, its atmosphere was much more hospitable. Many scientists even believed that it was temperate and actually had an ocean. So those kind of possibilities
2: are also open in the sense that it's possible that there was probably some life form on Venus, say, several million years ago and that got destroyed as Venus, during its development, became more and more inhospitable. Uh, but then the phosphine that was produced then remains in the atmosphere. So those kind of possibilities
0: are still there. The discovery of the gas, Amitabh says, is as certain as it gets when it comes to these kind of experiments. But since it has only been detected through telescopes, it would require further probing more explorations will be done to figure out whether the phosphine was or is being produced by some alien life form. And this wouldn't even be the first time that Venus would be probed. In fact,
2: there was interest in Venus much before there was interest in Mars, mainly because it is the nearest to Earth you know, it was easy to go to. So space missions to Venus began way back in the early 1960s. In fact, there has been a landing in 1970. And uh, there have been several missions, mainly launched by the then USSR, which probed Venus. But then they realized there was a problem there
0: because of such a very uh, inhospitable climate around Venus. Spacecraft that have tried to land on the planet have crashed and melted down due to its environment. Amitabh says that after those attempts, people moved on to Mars, where scientists have shown considerable interest in the recent past. There is, however, one Japanese aircraft currently orbiting Venus called Akatsuki. This discovery, though, is likely to increase interest in the planet.
2: You will see a huge amount of new missions planned around Venus, and invariably, most of them will be attuned to looking for no further signals of any uh, presence of any life on Venus. And in fact, Israel, our own space agency, is also planning. Uh, Mission to Venus. It's still in the drawing board stages. It's not been finalized. But yes, it is one of the missions that are likely to go in the next uh, maybe two, three, four, five years time horizon. And uh, like one of the scientists who is on the committee that is planning that space mission, he told me this is very interesting. And I'm now looking forward to the next committee meeting because whenever we meet next, this is likely to dominate the discussions and probably we'll have to redefine our. mission objectives for that
0: mission whenever it goes. The discovery is undoubtedly huge for space explorers and astronomers. As one of the scientists I was speaking to yesterday told me
2: that, look, if you are a planetary scientist looking for extraterrestrial life anywhere other than Earth, then probably for you, this is the biggest finding ever because this is much bigger finding in terms of the search for extraterrestrials than, say, the evidence of
0: water that has been found, say, on a Moon or Mars. Amitabh says that this is because water is only considered essential for the birth of life forms, but it is not produced by them. Something like the presence of phosphine, though, if biologically produced, could mean that there definitely was or is life on Venus right now. But there is a big difference between the possibility of finding life and actually finding it. In fact, as once another scientist told me, this
2: is, you know, personally, he would rank it not as big as, say, the recent discovery of, you know, gravitational waves, for example. So it has to be seen in perspective. It is actually a big, big, very significant finding, but uh, several notches short of actually even suggesting that there is life on Venus.
0: And in the end, we talk about Defence Minister Rajnath Singh. Yesterday, Rajnath Singh told the parliament that China had mobilised a large number of troops, weapons and ammunition on the line of actual control in eastern Ladakh, violating all bilateral agreements in the process. He also said that while India wanted a peaceful resolution to the current crisis, it was ready for all situations. Addressing the Lok Sabha on the issue of the standoff with the Chinese forces in Ladakh, Singh said that there are several friction areas in eastern Ladakh, including Gorga, Konkala, and North and South banks of Pangongso, adding that in response to the Chinese mobilization, Indian forces have made appropriate counter-deployments in the areas so that India's security interests can be fully protected.
1: In this year, the, the Chinese forces conduct, all mutually agreed norms. अभी की स्थिति के अनुसार, चाइनीज़ साइड ने यलेशी और अंदरूनी क्षेत्रों में बड़ी संख्या में सैनिक टुकड़ियां और गोला-बारूद मवालाइज़ किया हुआ है। पूर्वी लद्दाक और गोग्रा और कोंगकला और पेंगोंग लेक का नॉर्थ और साउथ बैंक पर कई फ्रिक्शन एरियल्स हैं। चीन की कार्रवाई के जवाब में हमा� in kiye hai, ke ko puri se rakha ja
0: the Defense Minister also assured the House that the armed forces would face the current challenge successfully, adding that both India and China agreed that the boundary issue was complicated. He said, quote, We believe it will require patience and a fair and reasonable and mutually acceptable solution to this issue which must be found through peaceful dialogue. The two countries have accepted that peace and tranquility on the border is necessary for the growth of bilateral relations. Also yesterday, Congress MPs staged a walkout of the Lok Sabha and held a protest in front of the Mahatma Gandhi statue on not being allowed to speak on the India-China border issue. Earlier, during the Business Advisory Committee meeting, Congress had demanded a discussion on the issue. But the government, however, declined to honour it, citing sensitivity of the issue. You were listening to Three Things by The Indian Express. Today's show was written and produced by me, Shashank Bhargav, and as always, was edited and mixed by our producer, Joshua Thomas. Before we go, here's another reminder to check out Indian Express's explain section. You can log on to indianexpress.com explain and find in-depth analysis by the right experts. It has everything you need to know to understand the news better and see the bigger picture. If you like this show, then you can subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. You can also recommend the show to someone you think will like it. Share it with a friend or someone in your family. It's the best way for people to get to know about us. You can also tweet us at Express Audio and write to us at podcast at indianexpress.com.